And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, again, my favorite part of the show. Except maybe, maybe with this guy, I got to give him a, I got to give him a little bit of a bad time anyway, just because in a very short period of time, he, we're going to be in the office together every single day, and so then you know then you've got to have forced pleasantries. But not, nevertheless, I'm still thankful that he's joining us here. He's our he's our guide through the macroeconomic space, Mr. Chase Taylor. Chase, thanks for joining us again, man. We're not going to have to do this over uh, computer for very much longer. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. We did the one live show in Seattle, but uh, you'll be able to do it off computer. Great. Oh, that's right. You were that? Did you come to one of the live show? Which one? Yeah, we did one in the studio. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So no, that'll be that'll be nice. And you haven't. You, and that was in the old studio days. I say that now. That that was pre-COVID bunker days. So, it was. See, my office has become the soundstage now. So, yeah, we got that going for us. Okay, so. Uh, Ended up having being a pretty good day to have you on. There's some interesting things going on here. Um, I think uh, there's a couple couple different things at play. I, I, I would I would sort of say these are the kind of issues that happen when you see very rapid interest rate hikes, which is why you and I have kind of had the attitude of, hey, watch out. There's going to be other shoes to fall, right? This isn't over. Um, and so I think, you know, let, let's first address what's really going on here at, at, at uh, Silicon Valley Bank in particular. Um, and I can kind of feather in uh, some of my own experience with that right now. We're dealing with a little – thank God we didn't get caught. I know, Chase, you know the majority of the background, but for the, for the efficacy of our listeners, um, this is precisely why when you're on the board of a small company – um, that we diversify our holdings. So uh, Silicon Valley Bank has actually been a very good partner for our uh, company, Tectonic, um, and been a very good bank. I mean, they're, they're, they've helped us get to where we are, are, but we spaced out our deposits. Um, so it's looking like we'll have a little bit of capital stuck there, but not for our listeners and Tectonic investors, don't worry. We're, we're, we're fine. We really don't have much exposure at all, if any. Thank goodness. But uh, yeah, so this kind of this one hits a little close to home. But but so before we get into the whole macro side, let's really explain um, because you've got your fingers to the pulse of this. Walk us through again. I I'd rather listeners hear it from you because I think you've 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 really dug into this based on the conversations that we've had this morning and yesterday. Kind of give us the layout. What what's happening at Silicon Valley Bank? And then let's look at them, uh, you know, as a one-off and then, and then kind of spread out from the macro picture from there. Because I do think, uh, I do think what's happening at Silicon Valley Bank does have a lot of macro or, or is, is mirroring a lot of what's happening in the macroeconomic landscape. But I'll leave that to you and, and for you to lay that out. So kind of give us the breakdown of what's happening. Sure. I'll, I'll start it by saying we're in the middle of, of packing up our house and moving and everything. So I haven't been able to dig into it as much as I would have liked. Um, nor am I very good at banking, uh, not a banking expert by any means. But from what I do know, um, some of it is kind of like a, a you know a broad-based macro problem and some of it is very um, isolated to, to that bank and, and their depositor base. Obviously, their depositor base is largely technology companies and startups in Silicon Valley. Um, and a lot of those people don't have a lot of money and they needed to pull some of their money out of the bank. So you kind of had a, you know, old fashioned bank run on the deposit side. Um, but on the asset side, the problem they're having 
in my view, is the same problem that every bank is going to have, and that is they have a lot of treasuries and mortgages and things that, and they bought a lot of those back when rates were nothing. Um, specifically, Silicon Valley Bank bought $88 billion worth of mortgages under 2%, actually under 1.7%. Um, so when you, or 2.7, uh, when, when you see stuff like that, you realize, okay, that's, that is a, a massive problem. Um, whenever now all of a sudden you have mortgages up, you know, six, 7%. And, and that's the kind of issue that banks everywhere are going to have. And we see it with, if you go look at like, say Bank of America's unrealized losses, things they don't have to count as a loss, but if you dug into their books, is a loss if they had to realize it today. Um, so that is, that is a truly, you know, system-wide thing. Do I think it is some systemic crisis waiting to happen or, you know, we're going to have a banking crisis? uh soon or anything like that no like banks are well capitalized they're doing fine broadly speaking um as long as you know depositors don't pull their money out but that was the problem with with this particular bank and i'm assuming it's going to a similar story with first first republic which is another bank in california that's also getting hammered uh the last couple of days yeah no it's it's um <clears throat> you and i were joking offline about the fact that you know I really wish the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank would have given me a call because I, I had a great bond replacement strategy for him, right? Um, no, all joking aside, th this is just for our listeners to understand, and this isn't anything This isn't anything about spiking a football, but it, as always, I think it's about education and knowledge that this is one of the reasons that, and I don't want to speak for you, Chase, but I'm pretty sure you'll back me up on this. This is the one of the reasons that both you and I have really been pushing back against this bullish narrative, just saying, look, we're not saying the bottom's about ready to fall out of things, guys. But when you see rate increases like this, you're a fool to believe that the rate increases are going to be the only problem. W wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is this all goes back to the, to the debate about, you know, whether or not you're going to have a, a big lagged problem from all these rate hikes. I have in my research been arguing um, vociferously that we will have a significant problem. I've, I've dubbed this the lag reaper. It's sort of the grim reaper that's going to come and hit the economy uh, with, with all the lag effects of, of these rate hikes. Um, but one year ago today, rates were zero. And since then, globally, we've had almost 300 rate hikes in the U.S. You've gone from zero all the way to 5%. That 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 stuff doesn't flow through overnight it takes it takes months and months sometimes a couple of years for you to actually feel the effects of all that and i think what's going on um with silicon valley bank is is just one little ripple of the lag reaper and what what we're gonna see start hitting and it's gonna it's gonna hit in areas that you don't expect that you didn't think of it you know it's not gonna happen in the order you think every time but this is the kind of thing that, that, that you start to see whenever you push rates from nothing to 5% in less than a year. The other thing I think it's important to point out, and you and I have had endless conversations, and hopefully anybody that manages money for a living will have these conversations because it always happens this way, but it's never the primary thing to be afraid of, right? It's always the knock-on effects, and it's the part that nobody thinks about. You know, it's one of the, re again, another thing both you and I were pushing back, and I, I was probably pushing back on this because I was relying on a lot of your research, to be fair. But it's one of the reasons you and I were pushing back against this narrative about, well, oh, higher rates, you know, the Jim Cramer line, higher rates, you got to buy the banks, they're so cheap. And you're like, well, that's assuming that lending doesn't slow down with higher rates. 
And that's assuming it's not blowing a hole in their balance sheet with the higher rates, right? And everybody just wants to skip over those things. And you're sitting there going, wait a second. When you see rate volatility like that, you got to know things are going to break. And Marcos and I were talking about this. And for those of you listening, Marcos runs our momentum portfolio. And he and I were talking about this and just saying, you know, this kind of looks like the classic Buffett situation of the tide going out and figuring out who's not been wearing trunks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the lag reaper has a good way of, of draining the beach. So I, I think that's kind of what we're in store for. And to go back to the banks, like when you have billions and billions of dollars worth of mortgages and treasuries that were, you know, so anchored to to rates being around 1%, like the, the, the capital loss on all that stuff, once it gets realized, is significant. So sure, like net interest margins, there's like a window for those to kind of pop up with rate hikes, but now all of a sudden we're seeing, especially with stuff like this, like they, the banks are actually having to compete for deposits when they have to do that. They have to shrink their net interest margin. You know, the spread they're getting between what they give you and what they get for themselves on the market. And that's going to really put a, put a, um, a lot of pressure on, on uh, bank earnings and really for until this rate problem goes away. For them. It's funny you bring that up because I, one of the things I've been noticing, and I've wondered if it was correlated, and you can answer this question better than I can, but I was wondering if it was correlated to what, you know, the broader macroeconomic winds that were blowing, and, and I could be way off in this assessment, but in talking to a lot of our clients and looking at some of these bank rates, I have been surprised at how quick some of these banks have moved their CD rates up to the point where I was looking at them going, there's no spread left there. They're giving it all away. Have you noticed? It, exactly. Is, do you think, is that, are they doing that because they're already starting to see a capital drain on the deposit side? I haven't thought about it too much from that standpoint. I doubt it. But at the same time, you know, that competition is definitely firing up for, for deposits all of a sudden. Part of it, I think, is just what what is a better asset in the world of, five percent rates and rate volatility than than a depositor that you don't have to pay that much to. But like you're saying, like it is starting to get that high. Um so yeah, it's it's possible that they just need to add to their own capital buffers. So they're trying to grab some deposits. Yeah. What I hope that's not the case because that would be that would that would, that would be a very bad thing. I'm I'm not at all worried about the big banks. Um I think that we're probably set up to hear a lot of really good, and I can't think, I don't like to use this word because I don't want it to be vulgar, but it's just a lot of fear porn about this. Like I'm just bracing myself to hear it. Um, right. Whereas I look at the big banks, I'm like, guys, look, until the Fed comes out and says banks are on their own, which they're never going to say, right? You, They're not letting the big banks go down. On the regional side, though, um, I think that this issue should now be coming to the front. You can see some of these regional banks getting pounded today, but this is where I think it could get interesting in the sense that it's really becoming for, for a lot of these banks, especially the regional ones, it's really becoming less about the state of the economy or what their depositor base is and, and increasingly about what's on their balance sheet, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah I, I think that is the case. Um, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. Like, I, yeah, that's, that's the case. All right, so moving out a little bit, what what is this? Does this really tell you anything about your macro outlook? 
Does it color it at all? Or is this one of those things where you're like, okay, if our macro outlook is correct, this sort of checks a box and tells us that we're heading in the right direction? Or do you glean nothing from it? What, 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 does this event tell you anything regarding your macro, macro outlook one way or the other? Yeah, only only a little bit of like confirmation in the fact that, hey, like things are going to break. Like the lag reaper is not, you know, just gone forever. Like it it shows you that you can't just keep going with with these rate hikes without breaking things. And not just things, but important things. This is the biggest bank failure in over a decade. Like this is, I don't think it's going to, you know, the start of some systemic crisis. I don't, I don't think this means the Fed's cutting rates in a month or anything crazy. Uh, but it tells me like, Yes, like the lag reaper is still coming, and and that's that's a big deal. Like I, it, I think I think anyone that was in my position that has been calling for hard landing in, in a significant way then was definitely starting to you know have some frustrations around the fact that the economy seems so resilient. We so one of some of this came to my house and off the ground. Is that okay? Okay, so so just to summarize this, because I don't want to spend this whole time talking about. I think the I think the issues of Silicon Valley Bank are pretty self explanatory. Um, I really don't think people should be that surprised by it. This is again, in and this, you know, we're a long ways from a finish line, guys. And so I'm not saying that. I just don't want you to interpret it as, you know, t- Chase and I have actually joked. Well, Chase, Marcos, and I all, all joke around that we're the only traders or money managers on fin, FinTwit that have ever gotten anything wrong. So, right, this isn't us spiking the football, but just wanting to really reemphasize that point to the listeners of this is why you don't just casually disregard stuff like this, right? Interest rate increases going up. It, and it, like you said, I love that term, the leg reaper, right? It's kind of one of those, it reminds me of like putting my kids to bed, you know, and they come halfway down the stairs and they're like, okay, everything's so good so far. Right, like it's okay. And they go to the bottom of the stairs and like, okay, still haven't heard me. They peek their head around the corner and gets get your booty to bed. You know, it's like call get back to bed. That kind of deal. It it's kind of one of those deals where everybody sits there, we get six, seven months into it, and they're like, Well, nothing horrible's happened. I guess the coast is clear. It just doesn't work that way. When you jack rates this high, there's gonna be pain, there's gonna be carnage. And I think this is probably another example, and I don't want to speak for you again, Chase, but probably for another example of why you and I have both kind of agreed that we think that this conversation recession versus non-recession is kind of semantics. It, it like, it just seems like it's almost impossible to avoid in this environment. And that recession isn't this horrible four letter word that everybody makes it out to be right. Like if the economy cools to a point that resembles 2020, the end of 2019, you know what you call that? It's called the recession, right? Like I'll let you speak. Yeah. Out. I I like your analogy. The one I I like to think about is so for me. I, if I eat really spicy food, it really makes my stomach angry. And but I love spicy food. So if I smash a giant, super hot Thai meal, the moment I get done, I might feel like I'm fine. Like this is great. Like everything is going to be fine. But an hour later, my stomach's going to let me know like that was a terrible decision. So I feel like Jay Powell just ate a giant bowl of wonderful, super spicy Thai food. I mean, and everyone's looking around saying like, no, this is great. This is fine. But I, every time that we've done this before, we had a problem. So I think, I think that's where we're at. Um, yeah. I, the recession thing, like you were talking about, like, I, I, I agree. Like, it's not really, 
it doesn't even come down to is there a recession or not. How much are we going to slow down? Because we're going to slow down. And I think what gets lost on people is as long as the data looks good, that just means the Fed's going to tighten that much more until they do push us into a recession. So it, it, to me, at least, it seems like all roads lead there regardless. But it doesn't have to be some game-changing catastrophe. Okay, so now before we get into some of the broader conversations, because I want to want to talk to you about uh, um, oil, obviously, uh, revisit energy, uh, and I had a good conversation with Tracy Shukart, shy girl, uh, about this on last week's show, and wanted to run run a couple of those things by you. Um, but before we before we get to that, kind of I don't know, putting a bow on this topic, if you will, what do you think the chances are? Um, because my feeling when I look at this tape right now is that, especially with the bank going down, I feel like it's highly likely the Fed is going to say something, right? Probably tomorrow, or excuse me, probably Monday. Maybe it'll be a 60 minutes interview over the course of the week. I mean, who knows, right? But like, I, I just, when I feel like regardless of what the Fed says, they will always be more concerned about bank, the banks and the market, like, you know, they may act like they're not, but it, I, I need to see evidence that they care more about inflation than they do the banks and, and the market. And I just, I have yet to see that proof, right? People are like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, for God's sakes, guys, the S&P is at 22 times earnings, right? It's not like they've smoked this stock market. Um, yeah, exactly. So in that, I kind of see the potential for a bit of a relief rally next week. But what I'm wondering is that, if this may change their tune a little bit, because they, if they weren't aware, and, and I probably think that they were, but if they weren't aware of this issue at these banks, especially the regional ones, um, it would kind of give me, I just don't, I would think it's going to give them pause about continuing to raise rates and run quantitative e- tightening at the same time. I, I just, if they do that, you're going to see more blowups, aren't you? Yeah, I, and I'm kind of with you. Like, I think they'll. What what I kind of expect them to say is like, "Hey, we're just gonna we're gonna keep tightening if we have to, but we have these tactical tools we can do to help banks and stuff like that." Like Janet Yellen just came out and said the banking system remains resilient, and that they, you know, the regulators have the tools to deal with this. Did she so say that like in the we'll last? Ten, did she say that like in the last ten minutes? So I just got an update about that, so, but I don't know if that's what she said very recently. But I just got the update. From well, the markets about the mark the Nasdaq's rallied like seventy basis points, like in the last ten or fifteen minutes. So I mean, I would assume that that's. So yeah, that may be what it was. Yeah, Tesla's up. So they're they're already running folks out to calm everyone down. <laughs> they're already running. Well, and that's why we took profits. We were long vol and uh, short the Nasdaq coming into today. And that's why we took profits halfway through the session because I was like, look, they're gonna say something today or Monday. And the market is still in this mode of looking for any reason to rally, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, we're still there. Right? You have not beat the nonsense out of this. Looking at the vault. <clears throat> okay, so this is random, and I don't want to take this too far off course. What do you make of, and, and I don't want to go down the Tesla wormhole, but I have been astonished by something. This thing is pushing almost 200 million shares of volume a day. Like, if my math is correct, which I think it is, that's like 65 to 70% of their market cap trading every day. How do you explain that? One of my guys, at, and the reason I asked that question is my trader, Matt, looked at me and he goes, how is that even possible? And I looked at him and I was like, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not really a hundred. 
I mean, when you think about the shares that are locked up, just like Elon's stake, you're looking at like 100% of the, of the available float turning over every day. How do you explain that? Um, obviously, I can't, but like, other than maybe some giant algos are kind of ping pong that are trading it to each other or something, I, I don't know. But like, we've seen the charts of like, the retail participation, and it's uh, just parabolic, truly like a parabola that's been forming. So, yeah, I, but I still can't explain it. Yeah, it's it's just pretty wild to see. I've just I, I can't recall seeing a company that size trade that kind of volume on a daily basis. And I, maybe there are exceptions out there. I, I'm sure there probably are. I just I'm not saying it's never happened. I've just never seen it. I mean, have you ever seen trading action on something that size? No, no but but if you think about this super polarized like world we live in, it, everyone either loves or hates Tesla. So you you sort of have like this weird battle online between the two camps and they're trading it out, I guess. I'll just continue to say, though, I just won't be convinced that the nonsense isn't over until I see that stuff start to dry up. I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, you know, Marcos and I were talking about like, you know, we're talking about the zero data options, zero data expiry options, all this kind of stuff. Like for the people out there saying, oh, the feds endured so much pain. I'm like, you have not been in a you have not been in a bear market, clearly, because the I. I mean, to sit there and say that we felt pain at this point, I, I mean, if you were levered long, ridiculous stocks trading at 50 and 60 times, yeah, you got hurt, but I'm sorry you should be. Like, you're an idiot. I, you know, and I'm, I, I'm not trying to knock on anybody, but I mean, if you didn't know that that kind of stuff was going to get blown up when rates went through the roof, I mean, you, you were going to lose your money anyway, right? I mean, eventually, I mean, you were going to go all in at Carvana at 80 bucks a share, maybe you already, I mean, you know, may, or maybe you were levered long Silicon Valley Bank. Speaking of which, uh, another interesting one saw last night, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, according to Jim Cramer himself, a month ago was just too cheap. It was a buy. Oh, wow. You got it. That's, that's nice. It, it got, had a, a big, like, bear market rally, too, like, so I guarantee a lot of people got sucked into that. Yeah, he's he is a phenomenal, phenomenal contrary indicator. He's a legend. Yeah. He really is. He's sitting on he's sitting on all cylinders. All right, so pivoting um, a little bit more to energy markets, um, I had a really interesting talk with Tracy, and you and I haven't spoken about this, but she said something, and I know both of you and I really respect her work and her take on things. Um, Tracy Shukart, shy girl, as her Twitter handle at c h i g r l. Uh, she was our guest last week on the on the show, and we were talking about oil, and she said something that was really interesting to me. She said that she used to really pay very close attention and based a lot of her process off of the weekly inventory data. And she said after last year, she does not do that anymore, that she looks at monthly and not weekly because weekly really led her astray. And I said, okay, Tracy, how long have you been using this process? And it's been 20-plus years. And I'm like, okay, so when something, when a sea change occurs like that, you know, with somebody that's been trading these markets for that long, I was like, what, what precipitated that? And she goes, I can't explain it to you, Zach. She goes, the market's just changed. It, it's, it's like the, what, she, it, and I'm trying to do my best to paraphrase the way she put it, but basically the market was reacting differently than in the past when you saw these trends or these moves on the weekly data that they would typically correlate or feed into this happening on the monthly data. And she said that just broke down and she goes, I don't really know why 
She goes, look, it could be market manipulation. I don't want to go down to the, go down the conspiratorial hole, but she goes, you know, the only answer I have is we just changed our, our methods and started paying attention to monthly. That really stuck with me. And I, and I, I had it down in my notes that that was something I wanted to really discuss with you because I just think that that seems very significant. What, if anything, do you make of that? What color do you have? Have you noticed a similar shift, a similar change? Kind of what you, I know you're watching that market a lot closer than I am. Um, so kind of give me your, re, your, your take on, on, on her, on what she had to say. Yeah, I definitely think it's true. Um, you, you've had some really weird stuff where you'll have like a 16 million barrel build, build and inventory is just, you know, historic inventory builds and then oil will finish up that day. Or you'll have the opposite where you'll have a enormous withdrawal and oil, like the price doesn't care. Things that five, 10 years ago would have moved the market immensely. To me, I think, I think there's two things. One, they've had a lot of data reliability problems, um, like an EIA of the, really the last, I don't know, maybe two years, but a lot in the last six months. Um, also, though, if you look at the SBR, I think the drawdown on the SBR kind of muted the importance of commercial inventory data. If you just look at the commercial inventory data, you would be like, wow, oil should be getting killed here because we've had these giant inventory builds. But as soon as you add in the SBR and make that adjustment, you're like, oh, wow, like, it's barely ticked up when you look at it that way. So I think, I think that's the biggest driver because we took out so much SPR oil that kind of covered for a lot of these commercial inventory builds we've had in the last couple months. Um, that doesn't fully explain every one of these weird weekly moves, but I think that's probably the, the big wheel, uh, the big gear in this driver. Yeah. Um, so what, where are we at with oil right now? What, where, where are we sitting as far as inventories go? Give us some scale. So we understand, are we still seeing those massive builds? If so, what do we attribute them to? I will tell you that some of those build numbers have surprised me a bit considering the reopening of China, but I, I was also under the impression that China built up a lot of storage as well during the last, during the lockdowns. What, what, what's happening there? Again, I, I, even with the inventory data, with the price of where oil is and with China reopening, the, the inventory builds have caught me a little off guard. What do we make of those? Yeah, it's been tough. Um, if you look at them without looking at the SPR, it, it, it looks significant. They really jumped. And it surprises me, too, because once the SPR, uh, we, when we stopped selling oil out of the SPR, I expected the inventories to be pretty ugly on the downside. to be a lot of withdrawal. Obviously, right now, it's refinery maintenance season and less driving in the winter and all that stuff. So part of this is just natural seasonality, but it definitely doesn't explain all of it. Um, but I think it says a lot that the oil prices basically has been flat for the last six, eight months, whatever, despite the fact that you're getting these builds all of a sudden. Um, when it comes to the, the China side, like clearly their demand has gone up a lot. Uh, a lot of smart people in the oil industry are saying that their 2023 demand will be will set a new record on on the high end. So, but you haven't seen the import oil imports like really take off. So I think the point you made about them having a ton of supply whenever they came out of the lockdown is probably the case. Like, and they're probably going to let that get fairly low before they get into the market in a significant way. But this is from like a, a bigger picture, like macro perspective. This is a very, very tough situation because 
you just look at pure supply and demand for oil. It's a very bullish story, in my opinion, um, called medium term. But then you have, you know, that lag lever headwinds for the economy to slow down. We're starting to see it with things like freight, uh, 18, you know, 18 wheelers. That was, you know, truck drivers was one of the few uh, jobs that was locked in the pretty decent jobs report that came out today. So you're starting to see a bit of a freight recession. Um, so that's going to pull down diesel demand in a, a meaningful way. And that, that tends to pull the oil market down historically a little bit. So you kind of have those those headwinds, but then you have a, a tight supply and demand picture, especially six months out. So definitely cross currents in the oil market. One of the, I'm, I'm still bullish though. Yeah, well, long term I am as well. Um, what, what you, and you kind of pivot into something that I want to get into next. I, I had actually next on my list to, to go after, and that was the the jobs number in the employment picture. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the jobs report that came out today. But but so kind of give us a, a summary of that. But then what I want to dig into deeper is that um, and you've said this as well. Uh, and I know you're watching this stuff, so I'm going to defer to you on this. But one of the things that I've kept thinking to myself when looking at macro trends, looking at earnings and revenue pictures from companies coming in, um, and then looking at jobs reports, I just keep getting the feeling that jobs – I just kept getting the feeling that jobs were being overstated somehow. And, and I was thinking maybe it was the gig economy having an impact on that. And now I've, I, I've started to see Mike Green posted something about this that I was reading last night. Um, and again, I'm fully aware of the fact that it could be just my bias speaking because I had suspicions of this anyway. But um, he was talking about tax changes that had happened over the last couple of years where they're now they, – I he said something about issuing 1099s to anybody that received yeah. – transfers of $600 or more, and then also looking at uh, the way I thought I understood it, and f- feel free to clarify, is that that those 1099 issuances is one of the prime, it was one of the things that the Fed looks at as far as employment goes, right? So is there a situation where some of these changes that have taken place, do we think jobs numbers are overstated, or do we think it's giving us a real picture? Because again, when I look at the underlying economy and I look at the revenue trajectories of so many of these companies – it's really hard for me to sit there and think that jobs are as strong as they are because I'm sitting there going, well, if they're that's, I mean, I'm looking at construction, right? I'm looking at all these different things and maybe it's still just the lag effect, but could there be an overstatement? Do you think some of these changes have made the jobs picture look stronger than it really is? Yes. So this is incredibly complex, but there are a lot of moving parts that are a little, at least a little suspect that we have to at least question. Uh, the one you, you highlighted there with Mike Green, where if you turn every 1099 into a uh, a business created that turns into these birth death models that shows, you know, more jobs. Because if anyone out there listening, if you hear these jobs number comes out, it, it is not like real data where like someone gets hired and, and that gets pushed through to this data collection. It It's a model. And, and a lot of this model has seasonal adjustments and uh, demographic adjustments, like all kinds of adjustments in it. Um, and a lot of that data is wrong. It re- it re- relies on surveys. The response rate on a lot of those surveys has been, have, have just plummeted, which means it puts a lot more stress in their model to get this stuff right, which it may not be. Um, the seasonal adjustments got all messed up because of COVID. They've had a lot of problems making those make sense. 
so from a pure like kind of data science standpoint, like there's a lot of problems that could be messing this up. Um, but at the same time, we do know that like leisure and hospitality, they fell way behind on hiring and they, they needed to make up. There was like a million less jobs a few months ago than there was before, before the pandemic. So they've been hiring like crazy. Um, if you do the breakdown of, of the different kinds of jobs, what we see the last really year is almost all the hiring has been low, low wage service jobs. So while you're losing health managers in Silicon Valley, you're gaining, low, you know, low, low paid people working at hotels or restaurants, things like that. So from a, an aggregate standpoint, that might end up being a, a problem moving forward where you're not replacing those large salaries. You're just doing, you're just churning over and putting people back to work at Chipotle. Um, so that's part of it. Um, another thing is, is like, if you look at things like overtime and hours worked and a lot of that kind of data, a lot of that's been melting for months. Um, it looks bad. It looks weak. And that doesn't really add up to this kind of macro story of this is such a uh, tight labor market, but okay, well then, why are overtime hours having problems? Why are full, why is full-time employment having problems? Because that's been falling a, a lot. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was another part I wanted to ask you. How in the world can we say a labor market let, – let's just put ourselves in the shoes of the average business manager, right? Are you going to go out and hire new people? Or when you're looking at the economy today, like what are you going to do first? Give extra overtime to your existing employees or go out and hire a brand-new employee? I mean, right, it's just cheaper to do overtime, right? People are like, well, you got to pay them more. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not paying them twice the amount, right? The other thing is you're not paying for – you're not paying twice the amount for their benefits. You're not paying twice right. the amount for their 401k contributions, right? It, it, it makes more sense. Those seemed, and I wanted to ask you about this because to me, that kind of looked like a smoking gun in this conversation because that to me made me go, okay, these jobs are overstated because that doesn't make any sense, right? If, if like you said, if we're this tight, you should see, you should see, you shouldn't see overtime nudging, right? I, I would be my right. thought, right? Is that right? Yeah. Is, am I drawing yeah, too high of a car correlation between those two, or I don't think so. But what I will say is there are there are still some metrics that that do show you know some some tightness. Um, I, one of them that everyone else looks at is like job openings. To me, like I think that is completely busted data. So I, I really don't put any stock into that. But and the other thing is like if you look at wages, wages are coming down. Like wages have cooled off a good bit to the point where it's confusing people. To me, it makes sense. Uh, when, when you can't hire people and you're having to compete for people, that's when wages go up because you have to offer more. It's just basic supply and demand. Right. But then, like last month, when we had the half a million people allegedly get hired, like, well, that should calm wages down because that means you're not having to go and compete for them. Like you're able to hire them, and the more that happens, the more you can feel relaxed about it. You don't you don't have to offer crazy um, raises and things. So. I think we will continue to see wages come down in that way. Um, but going back to, yeah, overtime, things like that, falling off, uh, full-time work, some of that gets lost in the difference between the household survey and the establishment survey. Everyone thinks about the establishment survey. That's when they get all the headlines. But the household survey treats what one job is differently. Um, if you have, if you're one person with three jobs, that counts as one job in one of the surveys and three in the other. 
So you get a bit of an overstatement in jobs in the one that we all stare at, whereas the household survey treats that in a more realistic way, in my view, and that it's been running way weaker than, than the, the headline data as well. Okay, so but what I will say is, is, is people quitting. Sorry, uh, like the quits rate is still reasonably high. It's starting to fall. Like it is starting to melt a little bit, but the, the amount of people that have been switching jobs and quitting, you would expect that to be a good bit lower if, if this labor market was actually like really weak. Okay, so it's, hold on. It's clearly not weak yet, but it's but all of this data combined tells me that we're it's not as strong as everyone thinks either. Okay, but I think even the so now I could be reading this wrong, so feel free to correct me. Maybe they maybe they maybe they allow for this in the data or, or in the in the model or whatever. But I another thing that I felt like was a bit of a red herring or or that was misleading was the quits data. Um what do we we have something like 10 to 12,000 baby boomers retiring every day, right? Don't, don't retirements count into the, the quit, the quits data. I don't think so. I think those should be separate, but I'm not hundred percent sure though. That's a good thing to, to track down. Actually, that would be an interesting data point. So if I'm wrong about that, I, I will, I always assumed they did. I just didn't, I, I, I figured it would be hard for, I, I just figured they were looking at people falling off ro- wa- payrolls. That, that's right. So, which I could be completely wrong. So, if they delineate between the two, but but if they yeah, don't, it's not, it's not like everyone files retirement paperwork or something. Exactly. So like, hey, I'm done, and, and yeah. So that's what you're saying. Exactly, and 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 people are like, yeah, but they file Social Security, so maybe they're counteracting. I'm like, hey, there's a lot of people retiring that aren't Social Security aids. So, like you said, they're not yeah, exactly. filing re- retirement papers, right? And I know that firsthand, just dealing with our client base. You know, we got clients retiring every 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 day. Um, so, but all of this, to be fair, again, not spiking a football. There's a lot of work left to do, and a lot of <clears throat> this seems to all be really fitting into into the narrative, right? Especially the one that you've laid out. I mean, it just we're we're not really seeing anything that isn't. I, I guess the way I'd put it is if if your framework, therefore our framework, <laughs> is correct. Looking at this thing, right? Um, these are all things we'd be expecting to see, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, but but again, going back to what I was saying earlier, like it's been that kind of frustrating because like, I've, I've even even though this is all in the data and it's pretty clear, like I've felt kind of on an island because it seems like everyone else is viewing this as a super tight labor market and it's it's very inflationary and the Fed has to push rates to seven percent or this thing's gonna you know get off the tracks and we're gonna have runaway inflation. I, to me, all that's wrong, but I. I have felt like I'm on an island. Maybe until this uh, this bank decided to go down this week. I don't know. Well, and, and okay, so that you're really on fire, man. You keep leading me right into my other my other questions or comments or things that I wanted to bring up. Um, <clears throat> I have felt very much on an island too because I'm just looking at everything that I know about investing. And, and again, you and I have been saying this for a long time, um, probably over a year and a half now, where I'm just sitting there going, "Look, I, I'm not saying that we're on the edge of some precipice. I'm just saying when I look at all these different factors in, this is just not an environment that's conducive to higher asset prices across the board, right? Like it just, it, to me, it's that simple. Like you, at the very least, you've got a massive headwind against you. And and I had the luxury, speaking of which, if anybody see, feels like I'm <clears throat> it, I'm bringing a little extra heat today, um, that, that, that vacation away with the missus, no kids, just eight days. Man, I got it. That was like a shot in the arm. I, I feel like a new man. 
So I am kind of fired up about this. But but that layoff gave me some some really interesting time to think. You know, question my own views on things and look at different things. One, one of the things that, the, again, I, I don't want to compare this to 0809 because I think the situations are completely different. I don't think we're on the edge of some catastrophic collapse of the financial system or anything like that. But one of the things that has always intrigued me is that the reliance of this industry on historical average data, even in environments that are anything but average. And, and that seems really wordy, but what I mean by that is, for instance, I saw a guy who I actually really respect, very sharp guy on Twitter, posting um, this data correlating stock market returns with interest rates going up and was making a bullish argument about that. And I just, the first thought that went through my mind was looking at the dates and the different examples he was, um, he was picking, um, interest rates were going up because of underlying economic strength, right? Like the Fed sitting there going, well, we can bump up another 50 basis points because look at demand, right? Like it, they weren't, the interest rates weren't going up drastically because we were staring at 40 year high inflation. So I was just looking at that setup going in, in all due respect, I'm not saying your data's wrong. I just think you're drawing completely wrong conclusions from it, right? You're looking at periods of times that are complete. They'd be like, well, look at the economic strength today. And I'm like, well, yeah, in the data, but it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a much different environment. And I think that that's, you know, it reminds me a lot again of 08 um, in terms of everybody going, well, housing can't go down that much. And I'm just, you're sitting there looking at them going, do you get out in the real world? Are you talking to these people that make $60,000 a year and have a $2,000 levered to the hilt real estate portfolio? Like this isn't normal, right? So for you to cite me historical average returns, it wasn't normal for servers at restaurants to have five rental houses. Okay, so obviously that's going to create a different, you know, economic loop. Would you agree with that, that, that when we get into these periods of times, I think one of again that investors have a tendency to rely on average data, not really taking into consideration we're in anything but an average environment. Yeah, absolutely. I see people saying things on a very regular basis that it's just kind of clear, like they pulled some charts together and didn't didn't step back and think about what it really means and what it means today. And now I'm guilty of that myself. Um, and to your point, like one of the things that has made me maybe less confident than I normally would be even about what we're talking about is the fact that so much of the work I'm doing is looking at, you know, the last 20 to 70 years of data and being like, okay, well, every time X has happened, Y has happened, Z has happened, we've had a big problem. But then again, like all of this is on the heels of turning the economy off and on a few times and throwing a few trillion dollars at it. Like, so none of those historical events had any, similar circumstances as this. So like we have to stay open to everything being different right now, including, you know, all of our notions we're sharing right now, but yes, absolutely. A lot of people are looking at analogs that clearly don't make sense in this environment. So one of the other things that I want to get to, and again, um, it's not spiking the football. I mean, matter of fact, this hasn't even happened, but I remember, I remember thinking, you know, there's been a lot of, 
<laughs> it's so funny to talk about this and say we're in anything but an average environment. And truthfully, we haven't been in an average environment for a very long time, right? So um, I think you got to take, like you said, I we got to just ha- keep our minds open with everything, take everything with a grain of salt, and 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 be very sober minded. I think that's probably the most important thing in an environment like this. Um, but but you know, taking it taking a step back and looking at the entire economy, looking at all these different factors that we're talking about. Um, what, what type of, what do you think we need to see? This is kind of a long lead up into the question, but what do you think we need to see to see a change of behavior from the fed? Because I've long thought that when they finally went to go raise rates, that the losses of the underlying bonds that have been issued over the last 15 years, would lead them to a place where we would see them running quantitative easing at the same time that the Fed funds rate was a, a, a good bit away from uh, from zero. And I remember when I first started talking about this, I think it was first with Luke Groman, like back in 2019. And Luke's always a nice guy and a gentleman, but he kind of just kind of poo-pooed it and said, no, no, that's not how things work. And I said, well, no, I know that they haven't, but I could see this happening. And then sure enough, that's what happened to England, right? They, they had to turn back to, at least for a time, they had to, they, they, they kept rates up because they were fighting inflation, but then they had to get back control of the bond market. What do you think the odds are, or the likelihood of the Fed having to do the same thing? Because I'm watching this action today and watching basically the losses on those interest, on the duration that they own, those interest rate sensitive investments that they own are basically what's blown a hole in Silicon Valley Bank. We know there's got to be more of them, right? So... I'm looking, and I always try to think about Fed policy of what's the path of least resistance. To me, it would be them ramping back up QE to try to keep a lid on this stuff and still keeping rates here. What kind of what kind of likelihood do you play on that? On the Fed having to follow 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 suit as far as the bank, you know, following what the Bank of England had to do. Do you think do you think that's a better than not chance? Uh, do you think it's slim chance? And if it's a better than not chance, how far away do you think we are from something like that? Yeah, this is an area where you and I are uniquely simpatico because I we have both reached that same conclusion independently. I don't know anyone else that talks about why why not you know ramp rates and do QE because to me like that that is exactly where we have to head. Like mathematically, like that to me is like basically a certainty when you look at if you look at the the average maturity of the government's debt and then you realize they're about to roll it all into 5% rates and you look at what that does to the interest on the national debt and the line item that is each year for Congress, like that, that's not really doable to the point where the Fed will have to do a decent amount of buying that because no one else is buying it. Like the rest of the world doesn't want it unless you change the laws and shove it down everyone's throats with 401ks or IRAs or, uh, you know, minimums for banks or something like whatever the case is, unless you do something like that, which is probably going to happen at some point, um, then the Fed has to buy this stuff um, regardless of the market conditions and everything else. So to me, yeah, it's definitely going to happen. I don't know if it happens short term or not, but just kind of looking at the math as it's going to come at us in the next decade, it, it, it has to happen. And and I know everyone thinks, well, you have to push rates to zero before you do QE. But like, I've always thought, why? Why? Like, why? We, yeah, just like if you think about what got us into this inflation mess, it was, well, we can't raise rates until we're done with QE. 
well, you should have. Like that would yeah. that would have really saved a lot of his problems. Like, and in my opinion, we've kind of proven that QE is like a quasi free lunch. Like it doesn't seem to cause inflation or deflation or anything. So why not just keep doing it and sterilize the government's debt while you're but but use the policy rate lever as you need to to you know keep inflation down or whatever or use taxes or whatever. but to me it's obvious and it's going to happen but you and i are definitely on an island on that it seems like i don't understand why i yeah i've never really been a, the, the other thing that shocked me is I can't remember when he said it, but it was a good bit after I had that conversation with Luke Groman and Powell came out and announced an announcement in one of his speeches. And I don't know if he was answering a question or whatever, but I remember him specifically saying, look, just because we raise rates doesn't mean we can't run QE at the same time. He's said that before. Right. And like you said, I just look at Fed. I think people put way too much on the Fed. Again, if you just look at them through the lens of the path of least resistance, you're going to be able to see what they're going to do 98% of the time. I mean, it's not yeah. like, right, they're going to wait for things to go too far. Then they're going to respond, right, the way that they always do because they're looking in the rearview mirror. And I, I, the other issue I've got is people are talking, you know, we're going to hear Biden talk about, look, I, I doubt that, I, I think it, I, I, I have a strong doubt that we will ever see a period of time in this country again, at least for the foreseeable future, where you've got deficits lower than one and a half to two trillion. I think we're looking at two trillion dollar deficits plus going out for a long ways. Okay, so that means the Treasury's gotta be you, you gotta be bridging that gap, right? What does that mean? It means your debt's gotta be climbing by two trillion a year, right? When at the peak, China owned like one point two trillion in treasuries, right? Who who in the world yeah, can exactly. soak up that much paper? Yeah, nobody. Especially <laughs> especially if the Japanese inflation problem is actually an inflation problem and they have to raise rates because that sucks in so much of their capital that they have overseas. Because, I mean, so many Japanese investors went overseas because they couldn't get yield at home. Well, it's three years from now they can get yield at home. They don't have to buy treasuries. They don't have to. They own like 10% of like France's debt. Like if they were just like, whatever, we don't need that anymore. What happens to the European bond markets, you know? Um, and obviously, they own a lot of treasures. I think they're the biggest holder now. So if all of a sudden they can go just buy JGBs and get their whatever, 3%, and you know, adjust the currency and everything the way they have to um, doing the, the hedging for the dollar, like that would be basically be the biggest capital provider in the world, taking their ball and going home. So that's just another like reason to think about this um, and realize, like, yeah, the. the Either Congress slashes spending or the Fed prints it. There's the only two ways this is going to happen in the next few years. And I think it's easier to imagine the latter than Congress slashing spending. <laughs> Con even you say that, and that makes me chuckle, right? Like, <laughs> what, 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 no, what is it called? What, what, what is, it's the, uh, and I'm just blanking out here, but it, what is it, baseline budgeting? Where, where it's like, well, yeah. we're keeping the budget flat. I mean, l less the 5% built-in acceleration, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just looking at Social Security and Medicare, like the, where those are heading with demographics, I mean, it's, it's going to be an issue. Yeah, the other thing, and I don't want to go down a political tirade either, but, <laughs> but, but in Biden's proposed budget, I think he's boosting defense spending by another $70 billion. And I'm just sitting there going, 
I don't want to turn this into a political football. What I want people to realize is let's quit pretending like the parties are different. Okay, let's let's quit pretending because right we're anti-war, so we're going to vote Democrat. We're in, look that if you haven't been around long enough and you don't realize that that's just getting switched back and forth based on who's in power, right? Like. I mean, it's just a joke. All these people are snowing you, right? Until we as an electorate sit there and go, no, we're tired of this. This is ridiculous. We don't need to increase our defense spending by another 10%, right? I mean, it's we're so far outside of anybody else that it's just ridiculous at this point. It's just feeding the, in my opinion, it's just feeding the military-industrial complex. And, you know, until people, it, again, I don't want to go down a political tirade because it's no different. Right. It's like it's the same thing. Well, look at how irresponsible this guy is with debt. And I'm sitting there going, hey, guys, let's take a picture of the last four presidents. OK, their relationship to the debt is a mirror image. I mean, it's or excuse me. It's not a mirror. Yeah. It's identical. Right. It doesn't matter who's in power. These people are going to spend and spend because it's the easiest way to get reelected. So, OK, that's that's my soapbox. I will I will step down at this point um, unless you have anything to add to that. Just the H.L. Mankin quote that uh, elections are. Advanced auctions on stolen goods. <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard that one before. I'm not sure how that one escaped <laughs> me. Um, I, that's that's a framer. Um, okay, so flipping a little bit, I get a lot of questions on this one. Um, and we've talked about this on the show at Great Links before. You and I have talked about it before. Uh, and we've warned people to be very careful with how they play this thing because it is a wild animal. And if anything, that view has been massively... <laughs> <laughs> reinforced over the last year and a half. Nat gas. Okay. That has been dizzying. What I will say is that it has been profitable for us overall considerably. Thanks a lot to your work. Um, and so it's left me to believe that I feel like you're one of the only guys out there who I'll listen to about Nat gas because I, you know, it's, it's just amazing. It's one of those things where I feel like, especially in the trading world. And for those of you at home, you're like sitting there going, me and my buddies don't sit around and talk about Nat Gas. Maybe so, but in the traders world, you know, you run into these guys, well, here's Nat Gas and the breakout. And I, what's going on with Nat Gas, man? I'm sitting there scratching my head going, even it just the spreads between Europe and us are still unbelievable to me. Um, what just and, and, and I've got a better understanding than most of this just because talking to you and being in the business. But walk us through the whole Nat Gas. How, how do we explain this unbelievable price volatility to the listeners? Yeah, so the price of natural gas went up a lot last year. got over $10 in August. And that is really just because supply was really tight. Um, By the way, there was a guy that I know that was calling for Nat Gas to hit 10 and he was ridiculed. Do you happen to know who that guy was? <laughs> yeah, I am that was you. familiar with that gentleman. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was um, you. I, no, no, I just have to bring that up. Again, not spiking a football. I just saw how much flack you took and how many people just completely dismissed that. And uh, you got it right. So this yeah, is why I I'm asking. Flack I was taking buying Exxon back in 2020. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, at the end of the day, like, the supply got really tight. And it's and it's for multiple reasons. For one, it is the biggest source of electricity in America. So we use it a lot. Um, obviously, it has industrial uses, heating uses, but we use it for electricity. Um, and in the summer, we use a lot of we use a lot of AC in this country, and that requires a lot of electricity. So hot summers create a lot of demand. We had a hot summer last summer, create a lot of demand. But also, now that we export natural gas via liquefied natural gas, it kind of has this new draw on our supply. 
So we started, we had some new LNG export terminals open up last year, started pushing that stuff out, had a hot summer. That kind of combined to create, you know, the big spike. Um, but when you have a mild winter and you don't have that heating demand that is a massive driver in the winter, you can have exactly what we just had happen where you go from, from 10 back to two. Um, and a lot of that was also because there's, there was the Freeport, um, LNG export terminal had an, an explosion and the thing was offline for months. That was 20% of us LNG exports. So just boom off the map. At first it was like, Oh, this is probably down for like a week or two. And then or maybe six and maybe a month or two or three or four. But next thing you knew, it's, you know, it's, it's been down for, for like six months. And, and for the well, listeners, back on the line. hold on for the listeners that don't understand and what that basically means. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chase, is that we have this big chunk that we're planning on exporting that gets stuck here. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because within a year you went from, we better ban the export of natural gas because we're going to run out to people in the last few weeks warning that we would reach our limit on the ability to store natural gas in the country. So we went from, we better ban exports because we don't have enough to, we have more than we know what to do with. And we might have negative prices that, that has actually been folded. So, um, but there was like that's beautiful though because whenever you see that on the top you know like well i better take some profit yeah um which we were able to do largely because we so i I pay a couple different folks that are really good at weather and they both agreed we were going to have a very mild winter and so it kind of made it easy for me to get out of the way of what happened but i got involved um in a big way in the last month to kind of get back in um and that's because those exports are back online um we will be adding even more export capacity in the next two three years and I think the hot summers are going to be a bigger story than, than people realize. So I, um, because gas has gotten so cheap, a lot of folks will stop burning coal and will start burning gas again for electricity. So there's kind of like a lot of drivers lining up. Um, obviously, you're going to have a little less gas production because uh, it doesn't make as much sense to produce gas for two bucks as it did for ten. Um, there's a lag there, so it takes a while for these people to lay their rigs down and, and slow that production. But I think you'll see production slow down. You'll see those LNG exports hitting record highs, which they just did in the last week. Um, and then as we transition to summer, that electricity burn, I think, will be a, a significant driver as well. So I don't, think it's, I, think it's, I don't think it's going straight back to 10 or anything like that, but I, I, think, um, I think it's okay to be bullish gas here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've kept you here for almost the, the entire hour and, and I know you're a busy guy and we both have other things we got to get done. So what, what other things, cause I've really focused myopically on the banks and then kind of the macro picture. And then obviously we talked oil and that gas. What are other things that you see are interesting? Marcos mentioned something to me today that he goes, you know, on, on, by the way, he goes, keep an eye on copper. Copper looks very interesting to me. Um, so any, any thoughts on copper and any other macro things that you see happening that, that the folks should be aware of? Um, let me pull up copper real quick and take a look. I, I don't really have a firm opinion on copper right now. It's kind of going sideways. Um, everyone got fired up on copper because of the Chinese reopening, but I still think real estate is going to be a problem for them moving forward. So it's hard for me to get super excited about copper because uh, China, China's housing market's been worth 20% of copper demand and that just, just their housing, like China itself is about half of copper demand, but just housing is 20% of global demand. So as long as they're dramatically slowing down their building, which they're going to no matter what, because 
their population shrinking. They already have too much housing and they kind of removed all the bubble dy dynamics. So that makes me a little worried about it, um, at least especially short term um, as we keep moving more towards EVs and um, renewable energy, all that kind of stuff. It, it, that'll, that'll help put a floor under it, but I think that might be more of a like two, three, four years from now thing than, than a now thing. So my view on global growth and, and China's property market keeps me from being particularly bullish. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get the feeling that China's going to, or that they're kind of trying to treat this reopening not exactly, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but my feeling is I think people are looking at it sort of like China in 0809, right? Like, oh, well, China's come back online. It's going to alleviate a lot of the problems. China's leverage situation, probably, it is a very different scenario than it was in 09, wasn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything in China is different than it was back then. They, they used to go, I mean, hardcore with the stimulus, but Xi's not really down with that, so they... They just don't stimulate the way they used to. And, and and when they do start seeing their stimulus work too much, then they just they, they pull the reins back hard. So um, they're well, not they're going to different mode. I mean, right, well, one of the things that they were dealing with back then was fighting currency strength. Now, now they're really interested on the opposite end, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that that pivots back and forth. That It just depends on, on our macro versus theirs. And one of their problems is, you know, they had just blowout exports in the last couple of years because of all of our stimulus creating so much demand here. Well, now all of a sudden they have shipping containers piling up. They don't even know where to put them anymore because our demand has slowed down so much. Granted, you know, everyone will tell you that our, our economy is strong, but for some reason, uh, all the shipping containers are piling up in China. Um, Weird so they're going to they're gonna run into that as a, as a giant headwind. Their export markets are slowing down. Um, and then... They're just not good at stimulating their own domestic demand very well at all, um, especially now that everyone's frozen and freaked out about property, which is where Chinese people save their money. And all of a sudden, that's not as reliable as it was. So it's it's really hard to get animal spirits fired up whenever everyone's main asset is uh, sketchy. All right, pal. Well, hey, that, that ties it up for us out of time. I appreciate you, as always, for joining us. And like I said... If the audio quality is a little bit bad, we're back in the studio, but Chase is working on a on a half measure because he's in the middle of moving out here. So uh, anyway, Chase, thanks so much for joining us. As always, you guys can follow him at Pinecone Macro on, uh, right? Pinecone Macro at Twitter? Yep. Yep. And uh, thanks again for joining us, buddy. Always good to connect. Yeah, always a pleasure. See All right, buddy. So, yeah, see you soon. All right, you guys, that's all we've got for today. As always, got another great interview. Still have another great slate of interviews lined up to go, so you're not going to want to miss them. Keep an eye out. Until then, we'll see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.